There's all your tax information. Here's your direct deposit information. Here's your waiver of of responsibility due to temporary or permanent insanity. Congratulations. Wait, you are now officially our unofficial third host. When the hell did we become like incorporated in some Don't look at me. I'm still waiting for my first paycheck. Somehow you're getting paid ahead of me. Well, that's because we I'm get paid girl. for this. Listen, I actually have like what is known as like a really good agent. It happens to be my mom. <laughs> so now that I'm like unofficially, officially unofficial, there's going to be some changes around here, boys. Wait, what? Points. So I think that we need to like start actually having like, oh, I don't know. We need to work on the puns. So I noticed that Sunset Slade has kind of been putting in a little bit of complaints with the complaint department. So we need to work on that. What kind of punishment is this? No, we need more puns. Oh, more. Oh, I got you covered on that. We can do that. Yeah. Also, I think. Call me Ellen Moore. (laughs) So I also do believe that we're probably going to need some actual writers. Can we afford that? You're already taking up our whole budget, Chrissy. Well, that's where the next part is. So I think we might have to resort to some robbery. I bought his costumes. I played Payday once. I know how to do this, right? Yeah. So you guys have your choice. I have Joker. I have Riddler. I have Mad Hatter. And I have Scarecrow. Hey, there's a mask here for Rosie the Robot. I think you got the wrong person that says Mr. J. Mr. J. <laughs> You're gonna say it, say it right. <laughs> While we sort this out, we better roll the intro. There are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The Penny and James can sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm James Irish. I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. And I'm Chrissy Harding. Welcome once again to the Pemmy and James and Chrissy kind of sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hi, everyone. Congratulations. You've graduated to the main title. Does this mean I get plot armor? Around the chest and waist. Is it better than what I get in role-playing games? I think it'd be hard to be worse. Yeah, it's fully covering. Okay, then we're good. Okay, then we're good. Does this mean they have to change the YouTube version to the P, K, and J podcast? Only on episodes when she's on. Yeah. Or you could do P and J featuring K. Ooh, I kind of like the sound of that. It's all about marketing. And all about timing. That too. Which, you know, kind of leads into what we are talking about today, actually. Yeah. With the passing of Arlene Sorkin on August 24th mm. of this year, any debate on what we'd be returning to the podcast with once we ended our September break was settled within a matter of days within my mind, and thankfully, Pemmy agreed. Mm-hmm. It's sad. We lost two people from Batman the Animated Series this year. I know. Was it Kevin? We lost Kevin. Yeah, we lost Kevin Conroy. Conroy. And, and then we, we lost... lost Arlene Sorkin. Yeah, we lost Kevin, we lost Arlene. We lost somebody, I thought we lost somebody else too from Batman. 
Or was it the year before? Uh, uh, no, I think so. Okay. But without Arlene, we would absolutely have no Harley Quinn, the breakout character of Batman the Animated Series, and now arguably one of the most recognizable characters in superhero fiction, period, regardless of company or media of origin. Mm-hmm. She was the inspiration for the character, and when, I think it was Paul, Paul Dini, yeah. yeah, Paul Dini, when he thought up the character, he based it off of Arlene Sorkin, and he wanted no one else to voice her, but her. Like sands through the hourglass, our story begins further back within the days of our lives. The very long-running daytime soap opera that began in 1965 and still runs to this day. Talk about your archive panics. Talk about going back to our parents. <laughs> here, we, here was their addiction, everybody. Soap operas. They were watching their stories! <laughs> That's what my grandmother always called it. But I don't know much about soap operas, but from what I understand, those things are done on a breakneck schedule. So, Yeah, they were. In 1984, Arlene Sorkin joined the cast as the whimsically named Calliope Jones and proceeded to add an air of eccentricity to the show. Known for her wild hats and offbeat behavior, there was a lot in this character that would transfer over to Harley Quinn. After all, not many soap opera characters would dance to loud music early in the morning, think her lover is complaining about the noise the birds are making, and then l- loudly yell at them to shut up. <laughs> she fit in really good for Days of Our Lives. I cannot think of another soap opera that tackled everything from demonic possession to witchcraft to having, an, uh, having a mobster that pretty much everyone thought was immortal and a vampire. And let's not forget the alien abductions. Oh my god, I forgot about the alien abduction one. You're right. We keep having to make plots on a daily basis. (laughs) Well, freaking everybody else would like, oh my god, we're going to have you sleep with your husband's twin brother's cousin's roommate's double buddy whatever like seven billion times they were like, yeah, we kind of already done all the triangles. We're just going to have you get possessed by the devil this time. No worries. (laughs) Like, at least Days of Our Lives was like, you know, we're not taking ourselves seriously anymore. We're just going to have fun with it. Man, now I feel like I missed out there for watching these. <laughs> Although the original out there one was Dark Shadows. I do know about that. Yeah. After leaving Days of Our Lives in 1990, Arlene would spend two years as co-host of America's Funniest People, opposite Dave Coulier. Something which I'm sure did not thrill Alanis Morissette, but at least she didn't write a song about her. That we know of or she's admitted to. I didn't realize that was her until you mentioned it. (laughs) She also tried her hand at writing for the first time, co-penning a pair of episodes for Tiny Toon Adventures with Beth Milstein, with both episodes featuring fan-favorite character Fifi LaFume. I do like Fifi. She's cool. I haven't seen much of the uh, new Tiny Toon show, but I am humored by one thing they did with Fifi, which was uh, her long... Hidden secret was revealed that she is actually French-Canadian and not French. And it's her deep, dark secret. (laughs) I love it. So also working on Tiny Toons was a friend of Arlene's since her college days, Paul Dini. Of course, we've run into Paul before on this podcast when he was writing for, in a perfect example of, you gotta start somewhere, Filmation's Quackula. 
He was young. <laughs> he was in college. He needed the money. You can tell it's an episode he wrote because it literally has a character that's a parody of Morgana Le Fay in it. Yeah, Morgana Le Duck. <laughs> Unfortunately, voiced by Frank Welker. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't almost... I, I almost feel like almost everyone in that cartoon was voiced by Frank Welker. Except for... Uh, Teddy? Theodore Teddy Bear. Yeah, he's voiced yeah. by co, uh, co-runner of uh, Filmation, Norm Prescott. Doing a surprisingly decent imitation of uh, what's his face uh is it eg Di- no the, the the guy who played uh botch on uh help us the hair bear bunch oh um but, ooh, ooh, mr peevely mr peevely yeah the the assistant oh um... ah, you better think of that name fast or i'm editing this whole part out <laughs> no uh, you're gonna keep it in because that was actually wikipedia my friend <laughs> quick wikipedia save us the cast uh, of the hair bear bunch. <laughs> Joe E. Ross. There we go. Yeah, for some weird reason, my brain kept saying E.G. Daly, and I'm like, no, that's who plays Tommy Pickles. What the hell? <laughs> I mean, what the heck? So since then, Paul Dini had become quite prolific, writing for a wide range of shows, including several for Filmation's He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, and the Star Wars spinoff Ewoks. So he went up and then he went back down. Got it. Seems that way. He did write my favorite episode of He-Man. I just want to mention that. But Which which episode was that? Uh, it's the one where uh, Prince Adam actually gets jealous of his He-Man persona because he thinks his dad likes He-Man more than him. And it, it's, it's, a really, it's a really interesting take on the secret identity thing. And it also, like, it has a really heartwarming moment with his dad saying about how it's hard to say I love you to your son, which I feel like a lot of dads, especially back then, had issues with. So it was just a really well done episode, especially for, you know, He-Man. <laughs> He-Man, had, He-Man had a lot of really well done episodes that resonated with a lot of kids. But we can save that for the He-Man episode. Indeed. In the meantime, Paul Dini would be especially well received writing for Tiny Toons, leading to him being offered to work on Warner's animated series based on their hottest superhero property, Batman. Now, there's a sentence you could say pretty much any time between 1989 and today. Yeah. Batman still seems to be their number one superhero at DC. He's just always been a constant. He's always been a constant since his inception. I mean, even going, taking it very far back. I remember there was one point in time when I was younger, and I think it was the Turner Classic Movie Channel was on. They actually showed a serial of... Batman and Robin, that was silent. Whoa. It was an old silent silent one. And I just remember watching it and it was like first experience with like silent movies. But it wasn't like from the twenties or the it wasn't from the twenties. I want to say it may have been from like the forties. If it was from the forties, the silent era was long gone. Yeah, it was it was an odd time period. Because it was because I know Batman was not around in, in I think the twenties or the in the during the silent movie era, but I want to say it was from the forties and it was kind of like it was like what they would run before, like a movie, and then you go into the movie. It was like, weird. I can tell cool. you there was a serial that was a talkie mm-hmm. that is you can now find on Rift Tracks's website. Interesting. I know there was a, it was a serial I watched. Maybe it's because my dad had it on mute. I don't know, but I remember it watching it. Remember, I was not allowed to have control of the TV. (laughs) 
I was just going to say, personally speaking, Manzoli's been my favorite superhero. Okay. He was mine too. With Bruce Tim at the helm and riding the crest of popularity of Tim Burton's feature films, Batman the Animated Series began life in 1992 in the afternoon slot on Fox Network affiliates. Paul, for his part, did some freelance work at first, writing an episode with the Joker and a gang of henchmen. He decided one would be female and wrote this wisecracking gunball type. And when watching a compilation video of his friend Arlene's best moments on Days of Our Lives, he spotted her in a fantasy sequence playing a jester. Knowing he had something, Paul encouraged Arlene to audition for the part, which was only intended to be a one-time role. And after considering a few names, he settled on the punny name Harley Quinn. And Bruce Tim did a corresponding design as a villainous version of a Harlequin type. So the episode in question was number 22 in the production order, Joker's Favor, which first aired on September 11th of 1992. The phrase, a star is born, is a cliche as old as anything in vaudeville. But as we dive into this sucker, it will become obvious that this witty little spark plug almost upstaged the Joker himself. It is worth mentioning that she probably wouldn't have become as big as she is without Paul Dini, because even Bruce Timm in like, in one of the little documentaries they have on DVD set, talked about how like it felt like every script he started getting from Paul for a while, he's like, "We're putting the girl in here again." <laughs> I think, and and I think the thing also too is, as much as we as as a lot of people were like, "Oh yeah, she was just going to be a one-off character," I think Paul Dini had plans for this character. As the writer. I, I think it's also safe to say that Paul Dini kind of fell in love with his own character, but that's besides the point. Well, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, but what writer really doesn't end up falling in love with a character that they write? Like, To which end, I will offer a quote from a later uh, Joker episode. I should have taken the fat guy. <laughs> yeah. Because that but... is Paul Dini caricatured. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Even I think he even voiced the oh shoot part or whatever he says or darn. Yeah, the the thing is, is I think also, but I think the thing with Harley Quinn was was as much as she has a very codependent, abusive relationship with the Joker. At this she, point. At this point, but even in this, but you don't see it in this episode uh, that we're gonna the first episode we're gonna talk about. I remember watching this episode and her being on there and just watching her be able to hold her own with the Joker and being like, holy, like I fell in love with her in this episode because she, she, she could hold her own with the Joker and she could hold her own with like the police. Like when Bullock tries to like, gets, you know, kind of sassy with her and she just, puts him in his place and Renee Mont and Renee Montoya is like, go girl. Like <laughs> she holds her own. And I think even Paul and, and you, and I was like, this was cool to watch the, the evolution of a star. What I, th- I think they knew she was going to be a hit. I don't think they realized how huge of a hit she was with both boys and girls. Now, before we dive into the plot synopsis, I have to draw some attention to the episode's musical leitmotif, as some of the most distinctive music to air on televised animation, well, ever. Shirley Walker, the composer, was a soundtrack industry veteran at this point for feature films, 
doing additional orchestration work for Disney's Fox and the Hound, and several live-action movies, oftentimes sadly uncredited. Here, she crafts a score that's equal parts whimsical and downbeat, encapsulating a sort of -of out-of-luck mood, which sets the tone for the episode flawlessly. Warner Brothers' decision to invest in fully orchestrated original scores for not just this series, but several of their cartoons with Amblem and others paid so many dividends. Definitely was worth it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different themes they've given to a lot of the villains that are just really iconic to me. Like, every time I think of Two-Face or the Mad Hatter, I think of the themes they gave him in the show. Every every villain had their own theme. Like, Riddler had his own theme. Scarecrow. Poison Ivy's theme, if you ever get a chance to really listen to it, definitely suits her. It's very seductive, and it's very... It's very beautiful if you if you ever isolate that theme. Least we forget. Which we also hear in this episode. Joker's leitmotif. Yeah, and it's what's cool about it is you hear the motif before you see the villain. So you you get a hint of who the villain of who the main villain is in it. You know, and it's I love how they still use Danny Elfman's own theme for Batman. Like they continue to use it and improve on it, which is cool. So our episode proper opens with a traffic jam in Los Angeles. I mean, Gotham city, New York. Cause if you look at his driver's license, it says New York. And Charlie Collins performed by Ed Beagley jr. Best known at this point for his tenure on St. Elsewhere is stuck in it. Charlie's not having a good time. No rays. Kid needs braces. I hope they didn't get rid of the dental plan. They <laughs> probably did, which is why I asked, well, no, I'm going to be honest. Most dental plants don't play for orthodontics because at this time they still considered it cosmetic because the U.S. health system sucks. Hmm. Uh, and thanks. Now I just keep hearing Marge go, Lisa needs braces over and over in my head. <laughs> oh, and before at least we forget, and I quote, Bonnie's making meatloaf for dinner. At what point exactly did I become life's punching bag? Okay, can I get into something here? I yeah. never get this. This happens in lots of cartoons. What is with the meatloaf hate? I never get that. Meatloaf is delicious. I love meatloaf. When my mom made meatloaf, I thought it was a great day. <laughs> I, I will state, if your parents are good at making meatloaf, meatloaf is the best thing ever. But if you get someone who makes extremely dry meatloaf... Shoe leather. Enough said. I, I don't think I've ever experienced that. <laughs> I think it's picked because it's a quick thing to say when you need a, a food-related punchline. I mean, you could say meatloaf in one second, whereas you say chicken parmesan in maybe two or three. Well, and also think I think almost everyone has had meat, has had at least some experience with a bad meatloaf. Pemmy's lucky he's had good meatloaf. I've actually had meatloaf. I'm just making sure my sister's not visiting because it's actually her meatloaf I had. My sister once <laughs> made a meatloaf that was so dry that not even ketchup could save it. Wow. I mean, ketchup I even like could save everything. I've even liked TV dinner meatloaf. So I always just thought it was weird when I was a kid and I'd see cartoons. It's like, you meatloaf. And I'm like, 
if you have a problem with it, give it to me. <laughs> yeah. Like my sister, my sister made TV dinner meatloaf. Like, tastes good. Wow. Like, yeah. A police chase ensues by Charlie, with the Batmobile following, and Charlie's so upset he curses out the next driver to cut him off. Only discover that it's the Joker he just road raged at. Which, by the way, is why you never road rage people. You don't roll on the window and start yelling at someone. You don't know if it's the Joker or if it's the Batman, but either way will not end well for you. Well, you'll know it's the Batman because he's, he's not going to be Bruce Wayne driving the Batmobile. I I do have to say I love the animation of when he realizes it's the Joker and he goes from fist to like slowly and then high. <laughs> And then when the Joker starts chasing him after that, he the Joker actually does the signaling this time. <laughs> like, yes. signal. Oh my god, when the Joker finally does everything that he yelled at, like, no signal? No nothing? Like, oh, dude. Yeah, Joker decides to have some fun and scares Charlie off the freeway and into a blocked off area where his car breaks down. I don't know what type of car Charlie has, but the fact that it broke through that freaking like wooden fence says that that's a tough car. They don't make them like they used to. I yeah, I will agree with that. I also did have a, a 1982 Dodge uh, AMC Eagle, and that thing was a steel tank. So if his car was, and looking at probably the make and model of those cars that they have in that series, yeah, they probably were made of steel. Once cornered by the Joker. The clown prince lectures Charlie about manners on the road and decides to physically teach him a lesson. Fearing for his family, Charlie will do anything to make it up to him as Joker reaches for some sort of weapon in his coat. Yeah, of course, knowing Joker, this might have just been mustard. <laughs> you forgot the best part. He froze it at Charlie two cents. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, because yeah, that was one of the things Charlie said when he was yelling at him. Is, I had two cents, I'd... And then that's when he realized it was the Joker and stopped. So... The Joker threw the two cents at him and was like, so, what are you going to do to me? He's like, here's your two cents. What are you going to do to me? And it's like, oh. Mark being his, his always awesome self as a Joker. Oh, so, my God. <laughs> this promise is music to Joker's ears. He drops Charlie and asks for his wallet. Not looking for money, of course. Don't be gauche. <laughs> I know. He's like, here, take all my money. He's like, it's not much. And he's like, please. I'm better than that. He wants identification, looking at the address, height, weight, and, ooh, lousy picture on the driver's license. Yeah, Joker, hit him where it hurts. We all, no one, no one takes a good picture at the DMV. Oh, mine, mine's one of the worst because they made me keep slouching down to, because of how low their, their picture angle was for some reason to where it looks like I have like a triple chin because I had to like slump down so low for them to take the picture. Ugh. Joker promises to let Charlie go in return for a yet-to-be-determined favor, which Charlie agrees to, and Joker will call when he actually does determine what it will eventually be. Charlie goes free. For now. Two years later, the caption says, and we're at Gotham Police Headquarters. Yeah. Poor Commissioner Gordon. Gordon is complaining to Harvey Bullock that a testimonial ceremony in his honor is a waste of time and money. Bullock's okay with it. Free food. Yeah. Well, that's Bullock for you. I love Bullock. He's so, he's so horrible, but so great. 
He is an interesting guy. Bullock is someone who, as, as sloppy and as slouchy as he is, he is someone who is kind of dedicated to defending the integrity of the police department. He's someone who believes they don't need Batman. They can do the job. Kind of, he's that kind of guy. Like he, he, to him, it's like, why do we have you? We can do the job if we could just people get out of our way and let us do our job. And it's proven that he can get his, get the job done when he needs to, too. Yeah, like he can do his job. He's like people just. I think people just because he's so sloppy and slouchy and just a jerk. Uh, he also doesn't like to follow the rules. <laughs> Now, of course, Commissioner Gordon here is voiced by Bob Hastings, who we previously saw in this podcast as Dee Dee of Clue Club. Talk about a flip around. Wow. He aged quite well. (laughs) Dee Dee has gone up in the world. (laughs) Dee Dee has evolved into Commissioner Gordon. I mean, amazing what what can happen to you in several years. (laughs) Gordon's complaints about this testimonial ceremony fall on deaf ears to Bullock, and as he continues to kvetch alone in his office, Gordon also finds Batman disagreeing. (laughs) I'm just the night shift. (laughs) Batman, of course. Kevin Conroy. Need we say more? Exactly. I miss Kevin. I just love the line where it's like, I'm just the night shift. (laughs) I'm... There were some good lines in this episode. There really were. (laughs) Batman gets Gordon to finally relent. And when the commission asks about finding the tux, Batman has vanished. Of course he has. (laughs) I hate when he does that. (laughs) One of these days, I'm going to nail that cape to the floor. Yeah, good luck with that. The Joker, meanwhile, got out of Arkham the minute he heard about the Gordon shindig. It's here, at his current hideout, we get our first look at Harley, fully visually formed in her now iconic outfit, and calmly doing her nails as the Joker throws darts at the handbill for the event, right over the head of a rotund goon reading a Tiny Toons comic. Nice little reference to uh, shows that Paul Dini, Arlene Sorkins, and uh, Bruce Timm all worked on together. And also to uh, Warner Brothers, who's funding this whole entire madcap adventure. Mm-hmm. Harley's yeah. first line even has her calling him Mr. J, a hallmark of the character going forward, and as Pemmy mentioned to me earlier, is a reference to the Jetsons. Yeah, because that's what Rosie the Robot calls uh, George Jetson, is Mr. J. Mr. J! <laughs> but they nailed so much on the first go with this character, it's astonishing. Like I said, I think Paul Dini knew she was going to be a hit, and he was going to make her first outing one of the best first outings so that there was no doubt in anyone's mind that this this character was here to stay so joker egomaniac that he is believes he deserves the ceremony and harley enthusiastically cheers and whistles as he hands it up the other goons need to be prodded into joining in well to be fair they were reading a one was reading a comic book and if i was reading a comic book and you were trying to talk to me i'd be like Shh, i'm reading I, I don't know the face that Joker gives him before he notices. Uh, I'd be scared too. So I'd be scared of any instance of the Joker. And period, even if he was handing me a winning lottery ticket. Fair enough. Listen, I just be I'd be a bad henchwoman. I would just be like, I am reading. You want to die? Because I will kill you. I would never say that to the Joker. 
I listen. I play. I play a chaotic evil character every other Saturday, and I have fun. So, so to execute his plan, Joker first starts rifling through a desk drawer, and Harley suspects he's going for a specialist. But Joker wants to bring in Charlie. Oh, Charlie! We transition to an idyllic suburb, as far from gloomy Gotham thematically as you can get, while staying in the realm of Earth-based settings. Springdale, Ohio. Would have been awesome if they made it Springfield. I, I should ask. Uh, Crunchy lives in Ohio. I should ask him if there actually is a Springdale, Ohio. I'm opening up Google, actually. While you do that, Charlie's actually in a decent place mentally, throwing a football with his son when he hears the phone ring. Oh my God! There is a there is a Springdale, Ohio. Wow! It has a population of eleven thousand and seven people. It's a suburb of Cincinnati. So three guesses who's calling, and the first two don't count. (laughs) Even though he did try to hang up the first two times. (laughs) You see, Joker's been keeping such tabs on Charlie, even through a change of identity. The poor fellow has become his hobby. Wah, wah. Ooh, that's a scary thought. Let me change the name to Don Wallace. Charlie is booked on the next flight to Gotham to cash in Joker's favor, and he threatens his family in return for secrecy while Charlie watches Joker's heavies drive by menacingly. Yeah, it is is the Joker. One flight to Gotham later, Charlie is at the airport wishing he knew a way to get a hold of Batman. He's grabbed at the airport by a very enthused Harley in a chauffeur's uniform, with balloons no less. I just have one question. Okay. Why didn't he go to the police in the first place? I think that's kind of what he was thinking of doing before Harley jumped in, but... No, but I mean, like, when he first ran into the Joker. Oh, well, that might be why his identity got changed, for all we know. He may may have been in a witness relocation program. But if the Joker found him, wouldn't he then tell them, like, hey, dudes, I've been found? Like, what do I do? Um, he's literally threatening his family and has a car that was real right next to his family. Kind of don't want to make risks in that case. I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. I know. Okay. And speaking of throwing things out there, I want to mention Bruce Tim has a particular style of drawing female characters. Yeah, you you can kind of notice that too, don't you? <laughs> Very wide hipped. Broad, beaming smiles. Cat-like eyes. Yeah. Well, his uh, his influence, his big influence for uh, how he draws women is uh, Dan DiCarlo. So. Yeah. AKA creator of Josie and the Pussycats. Yep. yep. Which, interesting note, there is actually a comic out there where uh, Dan DiCarlo actually drew a Harley and Ivy comic. So. Just. To, I think I read it. Just to... Just to get the uh, loop around there. We're back to the beginning. So Joker greets Charlie at his hideout with enthusiasm and a hug. Charlie! But he turns menacing when it comes time to talk the favor. It's also worth mentioning that even when Joker's being friendly, it still feels uncomfortable. (laughs) Like he's being really uncomfortably close, even for someone that would be your like bestest friend. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely a creep vibe. Now for this favor, no violence will be involved on Charlie's part 
and Joker promises to send him right home when it's done. Yeah, just remember, this is a chaotic evil alignment, people. Take it with a grain of salt. Crazy Clown Catering pulls up to the Paragenitors... Peregrinators Club. I have no idea how to pronounce that. Listen, they said it in the comic, they said it in the cartoon, and I'm like, I'm going to need you to say that a whole lot slower and enunciate, because there's no way anyone is going to remember that. But that's where Gordon's shindig is being held. That place. It's this whole thing with Crazy Clown Catering is so blatant, you'd think Joker would be telegraphing it. Well, one key reason his reputation is so powerful, most folks would be scared to alert the cops. Either that or most people think he's so smart that he wouldn't be that he wouldn't be that obvious, but it's so smart it's stupid. All Charlie has to do is open a door when Harley knocks three times. And Charlie's rather surprised. But Joker reasons Harley can't push the giant cake and open the door at once. Think <laughs> This guy's crazy. It's too big. Look at the size of this cake. Uh... In the club. I don't know what's more tacky. The artifacts that probably belong to their native cultures or in museums, or Bullock pigging out. And literally burping right in front of Montoya. Well, given that this is probably aired in 92, um, I'm going to go with with Bullock. (laughs) Bruce Wayne is congratulating Gordon, who half-jokingly asks if he can help the Kabish get out of the party. (laughs) <laughs> yeah he's like take me. i think it was like he's like take me with you <laughs> i think that's what the commissioner said yeah uh oh god i just had a bad joke pop in my head yeah like i think i think the he says oh the tough life of a socialite playboy take me with you <laughs> he's, like, he's like oh so tough take me with you it's like I, help I, I was just thinking about how saying harley harley has a big cake has a completely different meaning now but um bump you would think that, wouldn't you, Pemmy? Yeah, gotta be me. You want to have your cake and eat it, too. It's easiest, it's easiest, easiest pie. Cake. But I've made pie. Pie's not easy. Cake's easy. It's yeah. easiest cake. <laughs> so Charlie sneaks in, sees Joker's heavies dressed as waiters, and then he sneaks into the Hall of Inventions and spots a glider that looks like a bat hanging from a crane device. Charlie's not convinced it'll work, but he gives it a go on the off chance it does. What does he have to lose? (laughs) Well, his luck is on the money, as Bruce Wayne and Alfred Pennyworth spot the glider from the former's rearview mirror. I mean, I mean, I mean, this is a very, I mean, it's only a half hour episode. It had to work. Oh, that and it was more Alfred noticed it. And then because when Bruce looks at it, he's kind of like, what the? <laughs> well, it's like he's like, I can't stay. The Joker's still lose. Oh, I think it might be closer than you think, sir. <laughs> Furthermore, showing just, you know, Alfred's just freaking great. Let's be honest. Yeah, this is. Yeah, Alfred. Alfred's the real hero of the show. Let's be honest. Half the, half the stuff Bruce does wouldn't happen without Alfred being right there going, um, sir, up there. Thank you. <laughs> so Commissioner Gordon is giving his speech as Charlie stands at the door and Bullock is still pigging out even asking Renee Montoya if she's going to eat the roll she hasn't started eating we all know somebody like this Bullock's got a bullet three knocks and Charlie goes to the door Harley enters in her police disguise blowing a police whistle pushing the cake 
and everyone assumes it's a hot tomato in a fetching outfit, to put it in a PG sense. Yeah, or, you know, as uh, or as Har- or as uh, Bullock puts it, the entertainment is here. Bullock's yeah. attempted flirtation with the disguised Harley earns him a club to the calf. And Montoya is laughing. <laughs> and like it's. Her. And it's a well-deserved hit to the knee, I, I will say. <laughs> I, it was just like, ooh, honey, if only you can aim just a little higher. Charlie tries to leave, but his hand is now glued to the door handle. Dun, dun, dun. Joker leaves no loose, no loose ends. In. Now, this specific moment. When Harley reaches the commissioner, she recites a silly little poem... And from this moment onward, the character is basically a made woman as far as the showrunners are concerned. <laughs> Here's to Gotham's Commissioner G. You lock up the weirdos, the crooks, and the geeks. You're a hero to all the boys in blue. But this time, Davy, the joke's on you. I mean, when she reads the joke's on you, that's it. There's no going back. This character is going to be sticking around. Yep. Oh, from this point, this I think just from her first entrance, it's like this character's staying. But I think this sealed the deal. And I think at this point, I'm sure DC was sitting there going, yeah, we need a comic book on her now. Because <laughs> she did make the transition to comic book shortly after this, I believe. It would take a few years, but we'll get there. Yeah. The police whistle triggers a nerve gas in the candles on the tables, freezing everyone in place, save for Charlie and Harley, via gas masks. At least they're nice enough to give Charlie a gas mask. That's fair. Joker pops out of the cake. Harley cheers and Arsenios and calls the frozen cops a tough crowd. Well, to be fair, they are. Yeah. Joker presents Gordon with a bomb and makes his exit, but not before Charlie demands an explanation and even takes a swing at Joker. I mean, when you got nothing to lose at that point. It it is true. And of course, Joker shows his alignment because what does he say? I promised you to go home. I just didn't say alive. Yeah. Joker laughs his way out as the show goes to commercial. I want to say the, the idea, uh, the position that Jim Gordon's in, like the idea of being completely frozen while you have a time bomb on your chest and you can't do anything about it sounds literally like one of the worst experiences you could possibly ever have. I feel I feel like Gotham Gotham police has to have like their own has to have their own team of therapists to deal with the PTSD that these guys have to go through on a daily basis. I'm just gonna say Forget sleep paralysis demon, that's an awake paralysis demon. (laughs) Agreed. With seconds to go before the bomb triggers in our third act, Batman swoops in and sends the bomb through the skylight he dove in through, thanks to Charlie's timely warning. It's the pin. Betcha Joker's probably regretting not having Charlie breathe in the gas now. Joker's pondering a new hobby. Which Harley recommends macrame. (laughs) But then the explosion hits, and its audible location tells Mr. J that the job isn't done. It's outside, not inside. I smell a bat. He rousts the goons to the van, 
but the bomb took care of the escape plan. That was good timing and aim. I guess we're going to tough it out here. Ah, the old-fashioned way, just like your grandpappy used to do it. Batman frees Charlie, who explains the situation while Gordon and the guests regain the ability to move. Batman says Charlie should stay with the cops as he goes on the hunt. I, I like that Bullock was frozen in mid-bite of a freaking, like, what, turkey leg or something? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think it was a turkey leg or it's some sort of drumstick. That was classic. <laughs> that set hit up his character for the rest of the series, too. <laughs> Cue the action sequence, brief though it is, and Harley tries the innocent act while going for a blade amidst the artifacts. I think she's more, I, I like how she says it, but she's saying it in a way of like, oh, I know what you're thinking. She, it's almost like it's the innocent act, but it's like, I know what you're thinking. She's this young thing that was, sedu- like, she goes into like, you should, it almost shows that she's more than just this like innocent girl. And it hints that she's more than that because I'm like, knowing what we learn later about her, I'm like, oh, you are making fun of the cliche. In so many ways. And it hints that she's smarter than she than she lets on. But Batman ain't having it. No, nope. because <laughs> especially when she goes for the knife. It's like please. handcuff Harley ponders beauty school. Boy. She'll never make it there, folks. Boy. <laughs> beauty school dropout. I don't know why. I'm just amused that she said oi. <laughs> She's like, oi. Beauty school's looking real nice now. <laughs> I think she I do think that canonically her family is Jewish or Jewish. Yeah. They incorporated that after Arlene added that little vocal inflection. Yeah. She brought a lot to this character in the finale. Joker leads Batman through a temple replica filled with traps that the club had built. I'm beginning to think this group of idle rich are crazier than anyone locked up in Arkham. Yeah. I mean, why would you put poison darts in the freaking? It's like, man, the Legends of the Hidden Temple is a lot different than I remember, guys. <laughs> I was about to say, I'm like, is, it, is this the adult version? Is the, or is this the, is this the fatalistic version of uh, Legends of the Hidden Temple? Because I want no part of this one. <laughs> I'd, I'd hate to see what the shrine of the Silver Monkey looks like. <laughs> that would be terrifying. Of course, Batman has maxed out his evasion stat. But a cornered Joker tosses another bomb at the bat who disposes it into a rotating floor trap. <laughs> Comes well, with, wow, it came with everything, including trap disposals. Needless to say, they're going to have to rebuild that exhibit. They usually have to after usually one of these action sequences. Joker escapes out the alley, but Charlie corners him with a right hook and another bomb. And he's not taking any more of the Joker's guff threatening to take away Joker's dream of a grand finale against Batman. Yeah, having him just die with a nobody in an alley. It's enough for the posseless insane clown to call for Batman's help. I, lo- I love how when he's up against someone who's he who he pushes over the edge, mind you. Because Charlie states the only reason why he's gone as crazy as he has is because he's threatening his family. He, like, he starts screaming for Batman, because he knows Batman won't let him die. Uh, also, I just want to say I, I like the uh, posse-less insane clown. Nice ref. Yes, that was pretty good. Batman's been there long enough, and implores Charlie to drop the bomb. 
but Charlie's determined to protect his family from Joker. I, I do want to, I just wanted to say I, I like that scene though where he's just like Joker's like, How long have you been there? Long enough. Yeah. The bomb was a comedy decoy all along. Which gets Batman to chuckle. Which is a nice touch. Yeah. Charlie walks into the proverbial sunset, hungry enough to even consider eating his wife's meatloaf. I think his wife just makes bad meatloaf. You know, my mom likes to put bacon on meatloaf. He really hates that. (laughs) That sounds good. That was good. That was a good one. As sadly, I can't take credit for that. Penn and Teller came up with that one. That was a good one, Mr. J. Well, if you think the setup to this joke was good, Harley, wait till we deliver the punchline after these messages. (laughs) 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 We'll be right back. On the next Pemmy and James podcast, the two-ton mouse of animation has been looming over us for a while. So for the Halloween season, we examine our first Disney production with a current spooky favorite. Scratch, a ghost, cannot successfully haunt little Molly to save his afterlife, and it turns out she has a vast influence on his own outlook. So join us for this special treat in The Ghost and Molly McGee in two weeks. Now, back to our program. Well, Harley Quinn was off to the freaking races after this. Paul Dini realized they had lightning in a bottle with this character, and they acted on it, having Harley reoccur in future Joker episodes, much to Bruce Timm's bemusement. (laughs) Again? (laughs) Other writers picked up on her, too, and also paired her up with Poison Ivy to help flesh out her characterization. Which also, I think, also fleshes out a lot more of Harley's spine a little bit. Mm-hmm. Which is actually one of my favorite episodes is Harley and the Ivy. Or Harley um, and Ivy. Harley and Ivy, which is one of my favorite episodes, actually. It, it, it's just a wonderful pairing of the two of them and just shows how much damage Harley Quinn could truly do on her own without the Joker. It also allowed for... a this version of poison ivy to flesh out her character too as a response oh yeah it it just was great for the both of them and really actually made me fall actually really start to really appreciate ivy's characters as well speaking for myself one of my favorite episodes from this era is the laughing fish which is of course based on the denny o'neill and neil adams comic of the same name Mm. that that was the episode that one of uh Bruce Timm's uh, direction notes was not to use the uh, Joker theme for that episode because he wanted it to be as dark and menacing as he could make it. I also enjoyed um, the one other one that the, that she was in um, was I o- almost got him, which is oh, a yeah. really good one. It's one of the best. Yeah. They haven't made a game out of it. A quote from Paul Dini himself. Eventually, each of the directors wanted to do a Harley episode. So the character began to appear in stories without the Joker. Over the years, she allied herself with best gal pal Poison Ivy for occasional romps through Gotham, and has even succeeded in giving Batman a hard time on her own. We now look upon Harley as our series' wild card, capable of showing up any time to bedevil our heroes with her screwball antics. Also, uh, 
random note, movie director Kevin Smith named his daughter after Harley Quinn. He did. I think her name is Harley. I think her name is Harley Quinn. Yeah, Harley Before. Quinn Smith. Before we forget, you had a tie to the previous episode to Captain N. Oh, uh, I was going to wait until we did both these, uh, done with both these episodes, because uh, they both connect. Okay. Well, in that case, we'll just uh, go with that plan. All right. Now you all have to wait till we get through the second episode to find out what the tie is. <laughs> now we'd get hints of Harley's origin story within the second season episode, Harlequinade. But the story would not be told in full until the release of a one-shot comic book in December of 1993, done by Dini and Tim, titled Mad Love. I would like to also tell people, uh, I would like to preface this, um, the comic book itself is very R-rated. That, that's not the same one. The, this one was, an, it was a tie-in to the, to the animated series. Yeah. yeah, there yeah, there was an R-rated one. You have to be careful which one you pick up because if you pick up because they look very similar, <laughs> if you pick up the wrong one, you'll be in for a little bit of a shock. Um that is my warning to people who want to find this comic book. <laughs> Just you got to be careful. There's two of them. So <laughs> the will... issue won an Eisner award and much praise and would become the basis of the final episode of the direct sequel cartoon, The New Batman Adventures which aired on the WB Network on January 16th of 1999. It's another red sky in Gotham, and another complaint from the commish, as he goes for a dental checkup. In his defense, I hate visiting a dentist, too. I can't say anything, I work in a dental office. One look at the silhouette of the dentist, and it's clear to the audience that this is the Joker. Yep. Though he looks a bit different now. <laughs> yeah! Pam, you've got some opinions on the changes of art design in this show, I'm sure. Oh, okay. A lot of people really hate on these designs. I don't think they're... I, I do like the original designs better for most of the characters, but I don't think they're bad. I think they're actually really good. Um, Even though getting rid of the Joker's lips, I don't... That That's one thing that I cannot agree on. <laughs> <laughs> and even like Bruce Tim has mentioned that that was a mistake in retrospect because uh, yeah, the Joker's design I'm not the biggest fan of. Seemingly, people have referred to it as looking like an evil freakazoid. They're not wrong, <laughs> <laughs> but but for the most part, uh, I don't mind them. I think some characters improved like this from this. Like I think the Penguin looks better in this era, and I think the Scarecrow looks a lot better in this era. Oh, I agree. And I'm a, I'm a Scarecrow fan. I like his design better in this era. And I do agree about the Penguin. I, You know, this is the thing. Like, a lot of people hated the new designs because they're really like the classic designs from, from, the, from the first era. And I'm like, I like them both because yeah. they suit the stories being told. Yeah. And I know the reasons why. Well, there's three reasons why they made the changes. One, the series made a comeback after a long hiatus. They wanted to change things up. Two, one problem that Bruce Tim mentioned that he had with the uh, original series was that he had troubles with the animation studios that they'd outsourced to, keeping the designs consistent. So by simplifying them and making them more angular, it makes it to where it's easier to keep them consistent, plus easier to animate. And you can tell the animators take advantage of that because they move a lot more in these seasons. And then th the third reason is 
they they were cro- doing a Superman crossover, so they and Superman was using a much more angular design, so they wanted it to look like they meshed the designs meshed together and not stand out next to each other. Yeah, so. and you kind of can see that a little bit. I mean, just look at the Scarecrow's design. In the, oh, he's the, so creepy in this. In the creepy. second series, yeah, but if you watch him in the first series, between like all the episodes he shows up in, his design keeps changing. Yeah, uh, Bruce Tim said that they had a hard time with his design in the first series because they figured no, they wanted to make him look creepy, but no matter what they tried to do, he just didn't look creepy. And so that's one thing with this season. They finally were. He's like, finally, we got a scarecrow that looks creepy. Yeah, and they didn't use him as much as they should have, which is I'm like, oh, you had this great design. You only used him a few times, son of a bitch. <laughs> like, come on, you you have a great scary character. Use him. Yeah. Now, and yeah. also there, and I can understand why some people don't like some of the designs. Like, uh, yeah, Joker looks weird. Mad Hatter looks weird. Yeah, but, and, oh. yeah, yeah. Um, but on the, but then, like I said, Penguin looks good. He actually looks like the Penguin now, and which he, instead of looking like a rendition of Danny DeVito as the Penguin, he actually looks like you know the penguin and yeah. like we said scarecrow is actually scary and some characters actually just got more angular like harley quinn didn't really change other than being angular yeah. more angular and the same thing with like two-face and Clayface, pretty much i i think with penguin he went from looking like danny devito to meredith burgess burgess um, meredith burgess, yeah. burgess meredith i, always I personally would name. prefer that i do too i thought he looked more like an, an aristocrat where before he didn't really, he looked like someone trying to be an aristocrat, which kind of worked a little bit with some of his with some of his episodes. When Gordon realizes who the dentist is, Harley pops in and stops him from bolting with a streamer gun and gags him silent. And as the Joker is about to unleash a drill that is not ADA approved, no, it's not. Is it safe? Never. Well, he's not even going for his teeth with that. <laughs> Batman crashes in the window, claiming the clue left behind was too obvious. Why weren't you here earlier? (laughs) It was Harley's idea, and so is the gas she's using on Batman. She cracks a joke, and Joker scolds her before they leave the good guys with a hand grenade and a may the floss be with you. Yeah, seemingly only Joker's allowed to make the punchlines. I love how it's may the floss be with you and it's Mark Hamill. Of course. <laughs> I wonder how many times it, it, how many, how many takes it took for Mark Hamill not to crack up. Not to go off topic, but there's an episode of uh, Scooby Doo and Guess Who that Mark Hamill like uh, guest appears in, and he gets annoyed. He actually gets annoyed every time Scooby and Shaggy reference Star Wars. <laughs> it's the whole running gag. <laughs> At Funny Bone Shipping another blatantly obvious front for a Joker hideout. He's drawing up a new plan, and we get the notorious scene of Harley trying to seduce him in a fetching red negligee, and the now infamous rev up your Harley line. Is this the one where she comes out of the pudding? No, no. that's a different one. Oh. Though, okay. both those scenes, both this scene and that scene are two scenes that I'm honestly still surprised they got away with. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, it was on Fox. At this point, it was on uh, the Warner Brother channel, which which is even more lenient than Fox. Yeah, I was about to say the two the 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 two channels these were on were one was known for showing Married with Children, and the other one also had One Heat One Tree Hill on it. So I'm not surprised. (laughs) 
So Joker shoves her off his work table, still fuming over his dissatisfaction with the plan. Harley innocently asks, why not just shoot him? Raising Joker's ire even more. Enough that he triggers his acid-squirting flower at dangerously close range, which Harley barely ducks. This is where we get to see how abusive the relationship is. A piranha-based plan is briefly revived, but then rejected as the Joker toxin can't make them smile. Harley tries the seduction route again, and gets literally kicked out of the hideout. You know, at that point it was just a bad idea, but... Credit for tenacity, I guess. <laughs> it must have worked in the past before, okay? She tried what she thought worked, it didn't work. A despondent Harley, reflecting to the hyenas Bud and Lou, named after Abin and Costello, of course. I love Bud and Lou. <laughs> wonders where her life went Looney Tunes. She loudly blames Batman for coming between her and Pudding from the very beginning. Cue the flashback! What? <laughs> nice Wayne's World reference. Yeah. It was going to happen. Arkham Asylum. Harleen Quinzel is a new intern at the facility, being welcomed by one Joan Leyland. She tells Joan that she always had an attraction to extreme personalities. As they walk by Poison Ivy, there's some foreshadowing. <laughs> Joan warns her not to get in over her head in an effort to achieve fame via tell-all books, while an incidental inmate licking the glass of his cell in the background is spotted. I like how, I like how Dr. Leland pegged her right off the bat. I also like how Dr. Leland also has the Bruce Tim figure. <laughs> well, it, it's funny because in, in the comic books, Dr. Leland is like the one doctor in, in Arkham that one doesn't let these this, the people, the her patients get to her. And two, she's the one that actually pegs almost everyone else in Gotham, like pinpointed them. Like she's like, okay, you have daddy issues. You got problems. And okay, you're here just to make money. Get out of my clinic. <laughs> like she's in the in the comic book. She's like pinpoint. Like no, 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 no. You're a fruitcake. Get the hell out of here. Like she's just she calls people out almost immediately. It's like scary psychic of her in the comics. As if on cue, we hear the Joker whistling his late motif. She walks up to him. He winks, and Joan warns they'd eat her for breakfast. Does this mean that the Joker is aware of his own theme song? Yes. Yes, it does. He is so crazy, he has broken the fourth wall. Well, I can think of weirder things for him to be aware of. He's aware of us. Uh-oh. Exactly. Uh, anyways. So, going into her office, Harley finds a tulip with a note. Come down and see me sometime. Jay. <laughs> He's quoting Mae West. That's funny. Sir, you are not Mae West. Despite her smile at the flower, she interrogates Joker about how he got out of his cell. He reasons that if she were going to tell the guards, she already would have. He's a smart guy. He's He's got her pegged. He's also been here long enough. He knows how psychology works. He flatters her name, which she's heard a million times. Still, it's a name he loves, and he thinks it's the name of someone who might want to know his secrets. Catnip, 
to Harleen's ears. Yep, he's got her pegged. Phrasing. <laughs> Sorry. I know, but there's also a reason why I'm saying it the specific way that I am. Three months of research and bureaucracy later, she sets up a session with him, and he starts talking about his father's abusive ways. Harley thought she was prepared, but not for that. Joker tells of him being drunk, then going on a circus trip. Joker's attempts to recreate the clown's humor tearing his dad's pants, complete with him Joker dropping trow in front of Harley. Inappropriate! <laughs> but typical of him. I was about to say, this is the Joker we're talking about here, right? Yeah. You, you know Good who you're th- talking about. Good thing he has cartoon-style boxers. <laughs> That's fair. Harley cries laughing as Joker relates comedy is always at risk of those who don't get the joke. Like Batman. I, I gotta ask, what kind of freaking school did Harley go to? Because the, the abusive father thing would be the first thing I would predict, but that's just me. Oh, it gets uh, worse from there. Uh, I, think it, I think it's one of those uh, diploma mills. <laughs> Harley buys all of this hook, line, and sinker, believing Joker is a tortured soul trying to make the world laugh, and Batman as a self-righteous bully. Quote her journal, as unprofessional as it is, I have fallen in love with my patient. It's revealed that this particular Harley monologue is in fact her on the couch, answering Joker's own questions. He's been in there long enough. He could be a psychiatrist. This is also Harley's fatal mistake. No psychiatrist would ever let the patient analyze the analyzer. It's definitely, I'll say, symbolic of what's going on. So to give some to give some answers to some of these, in the in the in the more adult Mad Love comic book, it is revealed that the reason why Joker's story about coming from an abusive household hits her so hard is because she actually was from an abusive household. Ah. So that's why, you know, she wasn't, ex- that's why she kind of sympathizes with him is she's like, oh my God, I came from an abusive household too. Oh my God, my dad used to beat me too. So like she, she sympathizes with him. So they do good because that one goes more deep into her background and they go into a lot of her childhood in that one so that's why she's very willing to work that's why she falls for it also she wasn't exactly the top of her class in psychology (laughs) of course this has been retconned several times but that's neither here nor there (laughs) with regards to this episode oh yeah Sometime later, Joker escapes, and when Harley hears he's been brought back, she watches Batman drop a bloodied pudding like a sack of potatoes. Oh, I, I did. There was one thing about about her uh, when they were the images they were showing through her little discussion with the Joker earlier that I I, I want to mention. I like that they ref. I kind of like that they referenced the uh, one of many origins for the Joker. The uh, th- Batman throws him in the acid. Oh, yeah. Uh, origin. The one that most infamous for being used in the uh, Tim Burton Batman movie. So Nice little well, run. If I'm going to have a past, it might as well be multiple choice. It's <laughs> <laughs> fair. That is fair. The orderlies separate Harleen from her bow. And for her, there's only one thing to do. Raid a novelty gag store right in front of the proprietor. 
and completely reinvent herself as Harley Quinn to break him out of Arkham. Even got the big cork gun. <laughs> oh, I should talk about that cork gun. The idea for that gun that, you know, they that big gun she has that shoots a cork that breaks into the streamers. Uh, do you know what the origin of that is? What? It's a random gun that Paul Dini found in Japan on a visit to Japan. And he thought it looked like a really cool weapon. And he brought it up as an idea of the use for Harley. That's really cool. And it, it did. It, it would shoot out streamers and stuff. Was what it, it had these big, like cork shaped, like things you'd pop in and it'd shoot out streamers. That's kind of cool. That's that actually really is cool. We return to the present where Harley thinks she has the scheme to remove Batman from the equation for good. A videotape is left at Gotham PD, where she confesses to a plan of Jokers to take out the whole city. We see how good of an actress she really is. She claims she can help catch him in return for protection, removing her mask and justice cap to help sell the story. I like how she's like, this isn't a game anymore. This isn't funny. And they buy it. And to help her, and she even sets it up so they believe her even more, like, mm-hmm. with what she does. Like, she really, this proves how smart she really is. At the harbor, it seems Joker has caught wind of a betrayal. But all it is is an animatronic with a Tommy gun. Which Batman's distraction from that is just what Harley needs to inject Batman with something to knock him the F out. Exactly. Yep. At an aquacade. Harley has the bat hung upside down over a tank of piranhas while she casually drinks a soda. She explains this is just her on her own, having improved on the plan by having the victim upside down. So to the point of view of the food, the piranhas would be smiling. (laughs) Clever? Brilliant. (laughs) She tells a less than impressed Batman that even though she enjoyed the romps, All Harley wants is to settle down with the Joker. Sometimes a girl just needs more. This makes Batman laugh hysterically. What are you doing? Maniacally, even. (laughs) What are you doing? You're laughing. I never heard you laugh before. Stop it. I don't like that. It's creepy. You're scaring me. Batman tells her the cold, hard truth which she vehemently denies until Batman relates the various stories Joker has told Saps over the years for his manipulative ends. I like to make a point here. I don't know how much of it is what actually he did and how much Batman is guessing. Both could be really good. Because I think, because personally to me, I think he's bluffing. Because what he says later to the Joker, I'm like, ooh, that was a really good bluff. This almost breaks through. It takes Batman having to tell her that the piranhas will leave no proof it's really him for Joker to believe her to get her to stop. Mm Mm-hmm. So she calls him in and he rushes over so he can slap her down. Yep. Which, uh, I'm sure the, uh, the jump cut in that is done, or the cut to Batman's response to it is done because of probably censorship reasons but i think that actually makes it look and well not look but makes it sound and feel much harder well yeah and and sometimes i think the best thing in storytelling is not to show it but let your viewers minds go there because i think our brain will make it much worse than it really is i remember watching this 
like watching this scene and when they cut away and you hear it, I flinched more than any fight scene I ever watched in this cartoon series because I think that hurt me more knowing how much she loves him. And she was so excited. But look, I did this for you. And he, especially when he nonchalantly goes up to Batman and goes, give me a moment. I'll be right back. And it's like, it's like it's a Tuesday to him for him to do this. Of course, Joker wants to be the one to kill the bat. And when Harley explains the change she made to his plan, he's even angrier. If you have to explain the joke, there is no joke. Yeah. He is right. <laughs> but that's beside the point. <laughs> and as he restates his perils of comedy line, he sends her through a window to plummet several stories. He shouts, Don't call me Puddin'! She's alive, but blames herself for not getting the joke. And yeah. people in Batman can sure live through uh, following multiple stories. <laughs> Joker now frees Batman. There's a sentence rarely said. I know, right? And then he says he should apologize for her. He's about to leave, but he can't resist. Well, yeah. I... And then he pulls out the gun, which is what Harley suggests to him in the beginning of the episode. Can, why don't you just shoot him? Can, can I mention that there was an animation error earlier? Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. Whenever uh, Harley is uh, trying to defend herself from the Joker, you see her grab that uh, swordfish. Uh, when she first grabs it, it's like gigantic. And immediately in the next scene, it's significantly smaller. Got a lot of perspective. People don't know how to draw it sometimes. So cue the action sequence. The tank busts. The chase is on. Joker escapes via a moving train. Or so he thinks. Yeah. Batman appears right behind him. He's good at that. Oh, yeah. Batman tells Joker she almost did him in. And his only move was playing to Joker's ego. She got closer than you ever did. Put in. I love that he put that in there because he when because you hear him say I hated that, <laughs> and then he puts it he puts it in there, especially when he goes she got closer than you ever did. She almost had me. She had me upside down. The blood rushing to my head. I couldn't think straight. She almost had me, and that was the part where I think he bluffed her. He bluffed her with with the whole. Oh, he's used that line so many times. It was this mother, his abusive mother, the drunken, the abusive father, the drunken mother. You know, he told one, what was he told the one woman? Oh, they took me to the ice ring, the circus. He said it was, as soon as she said that, he knew he had, he had her. Yep. And then he knew he was in her head. I go, and when he says, oh yeah, she almost had me. I had to think quick. And when he said that, I'm like, he bluffed her. He bluffed her. He knew what he was capable of. He probably didn't know what story he told, so he bluffed her. And he got into her head, and he tried to show her, you know what? You're nothing to him. And he did. He still did. When he said, call him here. See how he's going to react. He was so happy. And then when she realized he wasn't, he put the cracks in that relationship. It may not have broken it at this time, but this was the starting of the cracks. So round two ends with Joker plummeting into an industrial smokestack. And as Arkham's inmates watch a report of the Joker's alleged demise, Harley silently vows never again. Until she sees the flower and feel better soon card from Mr. J. 
And it's a tulip, just like it was from the first time. It's Which, worth mentioning, this isn't the first time in the series that Joker's seemly demised and... Comes back. Like, the Laughing Fish episode we mentioned earlier, that also had an ending where it looked like the Joker got eaten by a shark, and well, nope. Yeah, villains are good for that. Spider-Man ever tell you about the time Doc Ock survived a nuclear explosion? Yikes. Yikes. Oh, I mean, that's not too... I mean, didn't Indiana Jones do that? (laughs) Yeah. So, with that episode... Oh, oh, before I do this. So, Pemmy, what's the connection? So, both of these episodes are animated by Overseas Studio and South Korea by the name of Dong Yang Animation. Like, there's ten different studios that worked on Batman the Animated Series, but Dong Yang did a majority of the episodes. They were definitely the workhouse studio. And a lot of their episodes look really good. A lot of it, there's some that look kind of, I wouldn't say bad, but look acceptable. Look good to acceptable. As an example, they also did the Almost Got Them episode, and that one looks amazing. Mm-hmm. I actually, for the longest time, thought that was one of the Japanese studios, but Dong Yang did it. Dong Yang also did the animation for a cartoon we reviewed fairly recently. They did a majority of the first season of Captain N. What a difference a budget makes. Exactly. Well, I, I will give slight defense in their in, in their work on Captain N and the fact that seemingly Captain N was a show that was severely rushed. Also, some of their episodes of Captain N actually look surprisingly good. The uh, ep- the episode where they have to fight through Mega Man 1 actually looks surprisingly really good, especially for that show. But, again, they were rushed, and and Deke's quality control isn't exactly the best. So, But they did, however, animate the Mr. and Mrs. Mother Brain episode. So... There you go. So this, sh- so a connection from Batman the Animated Series to Captain N. So with that episode closing another chapter on the DC Animated Universe, that same year, Harley Quinn would make the jump to the original comic book continuity amidst the crossover story No Man's Land, giving the relationship between her and the Joker a considerably darker edge, as Chrissy has many times alluded to. Mm-hmm. And adding some superpowers to Harley's ability set via a serum from Gal Pal Ivy. Yeah, that's yeah. They, in that one, they they do explain why she survives that fall is because she meets when she meets Ivy. Ivy gives her a serum that allows her to survive poisons and gives her some superhuman durability. Kind of shows up also, I think, in in Harley and Ivy. Yeah, she gives her. She says it's to because of the fact that there's poisons at her location. It's to prevent her from dying to those. Yeah. From there, Harley would earn her own comic series, appear in some sporadic live action roles on TV, notably in the short lived Birds of Prey series, and become one of the cornerstones of Warner's attempts to match Marvel's success at the box office with three major movie appearances under her belt, performed with aplomb by Margot Robbie. Margaret Robbie is such a good Harley Quinn. I I haven't seen any of those movies, so I don't know. You <laughs> I've should, seen two I, out of three, and she and she almost saves the first Suicide Squad movie, almost. Yeah, but I Harley Harley Quinn Harley Quinn Birds of Prey is is a great romp. I I do recommend it's, it's watching fun. them. I, it's I've a fun it, romp. I've it's heard a, it's the the better of some of the better of those uh, DC 
movies. Yeah. It's, uh, how did my one friend put it? Uh, it's, it's, it's Deadpool, but as a girl. Really? I only watched, uh, honestly, sadly, as much as I like DC comics and stuff, uh, I only watched like two of the movies in the Warner Brother DC universe, and that was like Man of Steel, which I absolutely hated, and uh, Wonder Woman, which I thought was actually really good, even though the ending was kind of yeah. Yeah, this one, just watch it. It's just fun. It's just fun to watch. Of course, this is to say nothing of Harley starring in her own eponymous series on the streaming service Max, which has been one of the highlights of that service's... uh, Unusual history. It's uh, it's just. Have you guys? Have have either one of you two watched it? I've seen Not yet, but but I've I've heard a lot of praise for it. It is irreverently fun. It is not, it is a definite different look at the DC universe. It makes fun of the DC universe. It is fantastically serious. It is it is a satire of the DC universe, and it's hysterically funny. I I saw a scene where Joker like takes off Batman's mask, finds out he's Bruce Wayne, and his initial response is to scold him for never releasing the electric car like Wayne in Enterprises promised. <laughs> because he's not, because he's on the wait list. He's like, "Where's my electric car? I put a down payment." Yeah, it's. Oh my god, there's like a whole thing where Joker runs for mayor of Gotham and he goes up against Jim Gordon and they have this huge heart-to-heart moment where Jim Gordon goes, oh my god, you really have changed. I'm I'm giving up my run for mayor. You should be mayor. It's like this, it is hysterically funny to watch it because you're just like, what the hell just happened? And somehow this all makes sense. And yes, folks, it's on the list. List. So, Harley has evolved from scene-stealing henchwoman to a dynamic wild-card anti-hero, or anti-villain, or villain, She's just or a wild hero, card. or whatever, depending on the needs of the story and continuity, really. And her popularity and recognizability puts her in the company of DC's big three characters. She's certainly grown far past these humble beginnings as a comedic foil for her puddin'. Don't call me Puddin'. <laughs> and I am I allowed to say that I don't like her modern outfit? <laughs> I you know what? I don't really either, but times are a changing, I guess. I I, I and I usually am one who kind of likes punk aesthetic, but it's just like it, it. She no longer looks like a Harley Quinn, which <laughs> is my problem. It's like that's 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 her whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I it's. There was a, I mean, every super, every super being, I can't even, because she's not really a superhero. She's a lot like Deadpool where they're just the wild card. They just kind of do their own thing and sometimes they're helpful and sometimes they're just a pain in the butt. Where to me, it's just like she, I, they all go through a stage where their costume and you look at them and you're like, why? Just Why? Arlene herself would reprise Harley several times in follow-up series and projects, including Superman, the animated series on the WB, Justice League on Cartoon Network, and in the direct-to-video movie Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. She would star as Harley in the web series made in Adobe Flash called Gotham Girls, which focused on her and the rest of Gotham City's characters of the Feminine Persuasion. Arlene would also reprise the role in multiple video games, 
beginning with the Sega CD Adventures of Batman and Robin, continuing with the much-lauded Batman Arkham Asylum, and retiring from the role after contributing to DC Universe Online. Today, Harley's voice is performed in the Max series by Kaylee Cuoco of 8 Simple Rules and Big Bang Theory fame, while most other animated and video game projects she's performed by the seemingly omnipresent Tara Strong. Yeah, like in uh, Multiverses. Tara, Tara, I have to be at every cartoon ever made strong. (laughs) (laughs) Now, dear listeners, you more than likely have noticed we have a little part one in the title of this podcast episode. The reason for that is, well, this series, Batman the Animated Series, is so rich with defining moments for this family of characters, particularly ones who were previously considered second stringers, like the Mad Hatter, the Ventriloquist, and especially Mr. Freeze. Mm -hmm. We can't just stop with this one episode. Mm -hmm. We will absolutely be revisiting this series again to discuss those three villains, as well as Two-Face, Poison Ivy, the Riddler, and more. I, I especially would like to look forward to uh, Two-Face. Not to mention, I, I'll be honest, this is actually my favorite show ever made, is Batman the Animated Series, so I'm more than happy to come back to this on oh. multiple occasions. Oh, yeah. Batman the Animated Series, I, I enjoyed this because I think the show that I used, the Batman show I used to watch before this was um, the Adam West show, uh, the 1966 one, because, and, and that one you got, you didn't get to explore the characters as much as you did here. And with this one, we got to, we got to delve, you know, you, these characters got to have their backgrounds um, dived into in a way that was rich and fulfilling. And honestly, this show tackled a lot of very um, dark themes that weren't, really tackled all that much if you really look into a lot of the episodes that they did like they tackled a lot of really mature themes like human trafficking uh with the one episode where batman goes undercovers match malone's and he gets kidnapped and he wakes up on a on a almost like a a a human you know he's he was trafficked out to a workers camp yep was used for you know as and was used in human slavery uh, they do a lot with um, ecology. There's one episode, Tiger, Tiger, with human experimentation and yep. with Catwoman. Bioterrorism with Cat Scratch Fever and, and oh, Poison yeah. Ivy. Like, there's so many that they that they do and they talk about on this show that they tackle. Like, they do tackle a lot of really more adult, themes in a way that kids understood it uh, unfortunately you could argue they did it too well because one of the mandates uh fox gave them for the last uh couple seasons they did like seasons three and four before it moved to wb was that they were making the villains too sympathetic and they needed to cut that out so yeah i always hate it when like when it's almost like when produce like it's like we're giving you the money and this is getting to be too sympathetic and it's like but, dude, like, no, no villain is really truly black and white. Just like no victim is to no victim is perfect. Yeah, they they just. I, I think the thing is they didn't like the fact that kids were actually liking the villains, which it's like well, I don't I don't think there's anything you can do about that because man, I, I 
like a lot of the villains when I was a kid, and that was in stuff where they weren't being sympathetic. No, I mean, how many of us like Skeletor, like actually enjoyed episodes of Skeletor from He-Man's Bastard Universe, and he was not sympathetic in any way, shape, or form. (laughs) Before we get too far abroad from the topic now, we should probably look at wrapping things up. Arlene, thank you. Rest in peace and in power. And as we go to restock the breakfast cereal, we can only think of one appropriate tribute. This beautiful rendition I found of Amazing Grace. You guys know the one. (laughs) (laughs) Good night, everybody. See ya. Bye. Bye. The Penny and James have a sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.